0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: I'm glad you're all with us today for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh We have a special... Uh, show for you today. If you all were listening to the headlines uh, right before the NPR news, we're going to be talking about criminal justice reform in Georgia. Uh, It's not uh, news to most of you who pay attention to what's happening in the state that during his tenure as governor, Nathan Deal uh, introduced and passed sweeping reforms that have had a major impact on what happens uh, to people who are caught up in the justice system, and uh, we're gonna talk about some of what he accomplished, where it started, and uh, move on to talking about what still needs to be done in this state. I'm gonna introduce our panel for this show in just a second, but before I do, a quick follow-up to our show yesterday. If you were listening yesterday, you heard us talk about the 10th anniversary of the Atlanta, uh, the first rally of the Atlanta Tea Party, And we uh, talked with, among other people, Virginia Galloway, who was one of the three founders of the Atlanta Tea Party. They staged a major rally way back when they were founded 10 years ago. And Virginia was on her way to a rally at Liberty Plaza at the state capitol right after our show yesterday. I do want to report. David Perdue was there. We mentioned that Senator Perdue would be there. I do have to report that, according Kevin Riley, to your people on the scene at the AJC, there were about 10 people there, which says a lot, I think, about the energy of uh, grassroots folks, like those Tea Partiers of 10 years ago, they're moving in a different direction. And I don't want to get into a big discussion about it today, but if it had been a Trump rally, they would have turned out by the thousands. It just says something, as we kind of discussed yesterday, about the fact that the Tea Party is no longer where the action is.
2: Right. Things sure have changed. And I feel compelled to mention that Virginia Galloway is no relationship to Jim Jim Galloway, (laughs) our our reporter, but uh, Jim uh, and others noted the sparse attendance.
1: Yeah, just a quick follow-up to that. That is Kevin Riley. It's Tuesdays. He's with us on Tuesdays for Political Rewind. He, of course, is the editor, the boss at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm glad you're with us uh, today, uh, Kevin. Yeah, it's good to be back
2: after a brief hiatus.
1: Yeah. Across from you is Kerry Miller. Uh, Kerry Miller was executive counsel to Governor Deal uh, when he was in the uh, governor's office. And and Kerry, you were a member of of the Reform Commission that, uh, and you staffed the Reform Commission, that started looking at ways in which you felt we could make changes in the criminal justice system here. You were very involved in reporting it out and watching it unfold.
3: Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. I, I um, First of all, thank you for having me here. And, <clears throat> you know, I just as an initial thing, there, there are some things in a job like executive counsel that, that you end up doing that aren't necessarily high on your list. Uh, but you know the the work that we did with the uh, Criminal Justice Reform Council, um, and the work that uh, Justice Boggs, you know, helped lead, and that um, you know my boss really paved the way for, and and uh, gave us uh, leeway to do it, uh, was some of the most rewarding things that. That I've ever done, and and uh, that I'm sure I w- ever will do in my uh, professional career. You
1: but, mentioned Justice Boggs. You're talking about uh, Supreme Court, Georgia Supreme Court Justice Mike Boggs, who oversaw. I guess he was chair. Was that his title? On we, the uh, co-chair, co-chair. Yep. Okay, thank you. Uh, Marissa Dodson is with us. She's the public policy director at the Southern Center for Human Rights, and you've been you were very involved. Carrie told us before we went on the air in helping. Uh, sh- pass on information, data, looking at what they were doing and giving your feedback as it moved forward. Hi, Marissa.
4: Hi, happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Tell us just a little bit about what the Southern Center for Human Rights does. Tell our listeners, you're a remarkable organization and I think our listeners need to know just a little.
4: Yes, absolutely. So we are an organization that's been around for over 40 years. We are committed to equal justice under the law. We are particularly focused on um, the criminal justice system and the people who encounter the criminal justice system who are the least of these people of color and people who are um, fi- have financial uh, deficits that cause them to kind of cycle in and out of the system. We are engaged in everything from a traffic ticket through the death penalty and trying to ensure fairness and, and true justice for um, communities that are impacted by incarceration.
1: Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Michael Owens, we're glad to have you back, a regular panelist on Rewind. Uh, Michael is the immediate past chair of the Cobb County Democratic Party, still working in his day job of trying to turn Equifax's image around by getting more and more uh, cybersecurity measures in place. Hi, Michael. Hey, how are you doing, Bill? We're fine. Uh, The last time you were here, Jim Galloway said, uh, watch this guy. He may announce he's running for office pretty soon. You're getting close.
5: Yeah, that's what lots of folks are telling me. <laughs> All right, <laughs> There's been well, some wait national reports that I'm already I'm already running, so maybe I have to catch up with what the reports say. I don't know.
1: All right, well, we're going to wait and see how that unfolds in the next couple of weeks. Let's let's go ahead and start on uh, this topic. I want to take us back if I can to, I think, an important starting point in any conversation about incarceration in Georgia, penalties for uh, offenders who are convicted of crimes, recidivism rates, that sort of thing. So I want to go back, if I can, to a day in 1994 when then-Governor Zell Miller got up to give his State of the State address. He did it, Kevin, in an atmosphere where across the country a number of states California being a really prominent example, were looking at cracking down on violent crime, on getting tougher on criminals. And one of the measures that was established in states uh, other than Georgia at the time was three strikes and you're out. Third offense for whatever different statutes in different states uh, said uh, different kinds of crimes, you'd go away forever. Zell Miller wanted to go do them one Better. Let's listen to just a little bit of what he told the legislature in that 1994 State of the State Address.
2: We will give them a second chance to be responsible
3: citizens, but that's all they get. Some talk about three strikes and you're out. That's in baseball. Violent crime is no game. In Georgia, I want the rule to be two strikes and you're gone gone forever.
1: You know, it it's Zell Miller was a marine. Zell Miller was a tough tough guy in his life and he in those days that was the approach that he took and many other states took to dealing with uh criminals, especially repeat
2: offenders. You know, Bill, it, 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 uh, too bad they can't get actual baseball, it's two strikes it might Speed the game up for us a little bit, and there are advocates for that. But that was part of a bigger, bigger movement around the country where everybody was interested in getting tough on crime. And one way to do that was sensing guidelines and just generally not tolerating uh, any kind of violent crime or repeat offenders. And so Georgia, as you point out, decided to go just a little further.
1: Michael, one of the things that I thought was interesting about that is I went back and I watched that uh, State of the State address this morning, and... Um Zell Miller was a pretty popular governor in 1994, pretty popular. Uh, The lottery had been kind of an iffy issue for him with many people out there who didn't like the idea of what they thought of his gambling in Georgia. Nevertheless, he was doing fairly well in 94, Um, but there wasn't a lot. The applause during that speech was pretty tepid, and I couldn't figure out whether it was because – uh, there were Democrats who didn't like hearing this from him. I couldn't quite get a take on where the partisan lines were drawn, but this wasn't the kind of wild applause we think of when a governor introduces a new plan.
5: Yeah, I I don't think it was, but I think it, I mean, to Kevin's point, I think it kind of fit the mood of where the country was. If you think, I mean, going back from, that was 94, if you go back to really around nineteen early 80s, 82, Uh, is when the war on drugs started, right? So I think within this context, you have to really put that in. So the war on drugs has really been like the impetus, I think, for for all of this. So I think it was just, toe in the line somewhat as to what uh, what was happening in other places around the country. But I think Georgia again trying to be one step above trying to be that much tougher. Uh, it's one of those things obviously we know and we'll probably talk about this has some a lot of unintended consequences but I think at the time he really felt that was kind of a watershed mark to turn turn the page uh, or, or open a new page and then uh, thought that it was something that was really gonna gonna make a big difference.
1: Carrie, that was the climate nationwide, really, back in those days.
3: Yeah, you know, it. Um, it's reflective in our uh, code, too. I mean, you look throughout the uh, code, and, and Marissa knows this well, and folks that followed the Reform Council and our work, and uh, you talk about some complex sentencing uh, elevations for various types of offenses. Um, you know, it, it, and truthfully, it um, reflects what I think is a legitimate concern as far as um, you know, when you think of your motivations for sentencing or for punishment for for offenses and one of which is uh, retributive, um, you know, it, whether that should be the one that controls the day, that that's a you know, continued policy discussion. But, um, you know, at that point in time, it, that, that was the uh, was the momentum.
1: Marissa, I, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, because we're going to move forward and talk about what happened when Governor Deal. We'll talk about the consequences of some of what Zell Miller uh, put in place here, which led to the reforms uh, that started with Governor Deal. But uh, there's always been, you know, Kerry was quick to say, uh, well, yes, there are, we do have people that need to be put away. He basically was giving us a caveat there that, There are, As
3: lawyers are wont to do. Well, no, yeah.
1: but <laughs> yes, but in fact, this notion that while two strikes may not have worked, and we'll talk about that, there were, there were criminals who needed to be locked up, and the public wanted to feel safe and secure from them.
4: Sure. I mean, I think the problem that we have with um, these kinds of laws is that it is a broad stroke, right, that it would require that every person charged with any of these offenses has to be sent to the maximum penalty under the law. In most cases, this meant life. And what we know is that in, in the practical implementation of the law, that there are lots of people who shouldn't be there, who are there. For example, one of the serious violent crimes is armed robbery. And um, in order to be convicted of armed robbery, you do not have to have a gun, there ha- does not have to be any injury to anybody, but it is a mandatory ten-year, uh, mandatory minimum. And if you, it, it is uh, one of the strikes. So if you had an armed robbery conviction um, and you were later charged with another armed robbery conviction, that is a, a life sentence. And the problem with that, again, is that the impact of these policies is felt by the least of these. So you see more often than not that the people that get their charges reduced. From serious crimes to less to crimes that do not require these kinds of punishments are more likely to look a certain way to have a certain affluence, um, and so our concern is that um, as implemented, it's not about public safety. It's not that that we're really getting at conduct that compromises um, public safety and such. We would say that sending someone away for that period of time um, would actually benefit uh, our communities.
1: The uh, statutes that were passed back then um, and some. Somebody correct me if I, I don't have this correct completely correct but I think I do anyone convicted twice for murder armed robbery kidnapping aggravated child molestation rape aggravated sodomy or aggravated spe- sexual battery would be sentenced to life without parole
2: mm-hmm. yeah That's right. But imagine yourself, though, really. I mean, I'm going to ask uh, Brissa's uh, point of view on this. I mean, when you mention those crimes to an average person, I mean, they sound pretty serious. Mm -hmm. And if someone does that once and then again, you know, as an average citizen, what do you say to someone uh, you know, in the bigger context of how that worked out, what was going on. You used that armed robbery example, uh, you know, where you don't actually, you know, armed robbery, people have a certain perception in their head. But mm-hmm. but explain how that actually played out.
4: Yeah, that's right. And I think that that's what it, it does. It kind of evokes those kinds of emotions to hearing these kinds of offenses. And that's why I brought up armed robbery, because it is specifically a specific little different. And the reason why I think that it is worth spending time on this issue is, one, do we think that people are unredeemable and that no matter after any period of time that they should never have another look at the opportunity to be contributing members of our society? And I think that that's a flaw, that we should recognize that people are redeemable and that in the conversation in Georgia, you know, one of the things that continually comes up is this notion around faith and second chances and what redemption is about. But I don't think that the criminal justice system is a place that we've thought through what it might look like for us to have more programs and interventions for folks. And I would also say there... In terms of um, what I mentioned around armed robbery, when you hear armed robbery, you have a vision of somebody coming in maybe with a ski mask and a gun and, you know, panic. We have people that are serving life without parole sentences and 10-year mandatory minimums for being a lookout in a vehicle. A 17-year-old lookout wasn't even in the room and there wasn't even a gun. You know, someone had their hand underneath the jacket. And so I think that one of our concerns in individualized justice is that a judge who could consider the individualized circumstances of what happened and I recognize and I recognize how we got to mandatory minimums and what it says about um, justice by geography but advocates for um, eliminating or reducing the use of mandatory minimums believe that giving judges uh, specific criteria to think through, kind of like what Georgia did in 2012 around certain offenses, uh, recognizing that judges are probably in a better position versus a lawmaker <laughs> to decide whether or not someone should be sentenced. To Let me, uh, Michael,
1: you're you're nodding as you're hearing what Marissa's saying. Yeah, you know, um,
5: again, I, I think this is one of these things where we, we might as well go ahead and get it out there on the table early on because um, the first thing you that the real impact is the way that laws like this disproportionately affect certain populations well you want to get it
1: out on the table we're talking about african-americans in georgia
5: yes but i mean we 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 have to kind of start there and understand that um you know these these were all policies and even if you go back and look at the terms that were used you know the mention of thugs and hoodlums Uh, we've we've heard this recently in the media but you go all the way back to 94 and 93 those same terms were used uh, when when describing um, these would be offenders or or um, convicted offenders, so I think we have to put it in that context again. And it wasn't localized to just Georgia; it was kind of national national thing. Secondly, um, you hit on the fact of seventeen year olds, right? Because this this was also part in time where juveniles, as young as thirteen, mm-hmm. started to be rolled under these same punitive laws. Um, where you could go into a whole host of different uh, conversations about should thirteen, fourteen, fifteen year olds, or whatever uh, be be subjected to these same types of laws. So I wanted to put that out there because that's another prominent part of this being tough uh, on on you know these criminals that in some instances, you're talking about middle schoolers at the time.
1: <laughs> all right, so uh, Marissa and Michael, you have both raised both social justice and humanitarian concerns about all of that. but Carrie, there's another aspect to this, a pragmatic aspect to this. Between the time that Zell Miller instituted two strikes, and uh, right about the time that uh, Nathan Deal came into office, the prison
3: population more than doubled. Is that right? I absolutely soared. Um, you know, when, when uh, the governor came into office, and and just to you know, put things into perspective too, to, to rewind to, to 2010, you know, he, he's coming in. Uh, Tea Party is, is uh, you know, on the rise, is really uh, moving and motivating uh, politics on the Republican Party. Um, Governor Deal comes into office, who I think we've seen in retrospect as, as a very pragmatic and, and knowledgeable individual. I mean, you'll find few uh, elected officials that have as much knowledge, particularly with the criminal justice system as he does. Um, but comes into office, and and uh, what's he do at the you know first day of the state? Uh, proposes a a new form, uh, you know, a, a new idea of criminal justice reform.
1: Yeah, he was. I, I love the fact, Kevin, that the governor uh, said back in those days, uh, "I want to do criminal justice reform," and I'm being told it's not a Republican <laughs> issue. Well, I'm here to tell you, it's going to be right. I mean,
2: it was. I mean, the Republicans. <laughs> claim the mantle of the law and order party i mean it was a surprise and it was sure. not an issue that you would have expected the republican governor of georgia to say this is my issue
1: but it was a fiscal issue as well yeah. right and that's what we're going to you know so so not only are the state prisons uh, doubling in the population's Deal comes into office and is basically told he's going to have to build two new state prisons to hold all the inmates that are being shipped off because of these tougher statutes, sentencing statutes, uh, at a cost of hundreds of millions.
5: $265 million, something like that?
1: And, And at the same time, so you've got state budgetary concerns... And at the same time, you've got county jails. Yeah. And there's the power of the sheriffs in the counties across Georgia. County jails are, for, the mo- for many inmates, pre- pre-trial detention facilities in many cases. Uh, so once you go through the system, uh, you spear your court, if you're convicted, you're presumably set off to a state prison. The state prisons were so overcrowded that counties suddenly were being asked to hold more inmates than they could possibly handle, and suddenly this is a grassroots right, issue. Right, and sheriffs <laughs> well. in Georgia,
2: if I'm not mistaken, under the law, the number one job of the county sheriff mm-hmm. is to run the jail. Yeah. They don't like to spend a lot of time doing sure. that, but it is the main thing they're supposed to do.
3: Yeah, and, and you know, you know, and, and to echo that and, and to point back to uh, Bill, I think where you were headed originally, which is, uh, you know, what what made Governor Deal unique in, in wanting to look at uh, this type of issue right out of the gate? And that is his background as a former prosecutor, uh, former juvenile court judge, served in the state Senate, has a son who is a superior court judge and former prosecutor uh, who began operating the accountability courts, uh, but before they were trendy, by the way. And uh, so he comes into office with that background and he's presented with a, uh, you know, budget uh, briefing that uh, when you look at the state budget, you know, 75 to 80 percent of that budget is already dedicated either by formula or by uh, federal uh, funding to K-12, transportation, health care and higher education. Um, What is the next biggest chunk that that you have control of? And that's the $1.2 billion dollar uh, corrections budget as he walked into office. So, all
1: right, let's do this. Let's uh, uh, let's say we were at this crisis point where more and more money was being poured into uh, inmates to facilities that were housing uh, all of these prisoners who had been sentenced under the tougher guidelines. And as you uh, pointed out, uh, he comes into office. And let's listen to uh, just a little bit of Governor Deal Uh, on uh, a show out of NPR called The Takeaway in which he talks a bit about where he was headed and what he was faced
2: with. When I became governor of Georgia in 2011 we had a prison population that had doubled in the previous two decades and was about 56,000 people. We were told that at that point in time we were the tenth largest population state but we had the fourth highest prison population. Our budget had doubled Uh, to over a billion dollars a year, and the results were not very good. We were seeing a recidivism rate for adults of about 30% and even higher at 65% for juveniles that were in our system. So from a financial standpoint, from a safety standpoint, because recidivism obviously indicates that safety concerns are involved, and from an overall standpoint of trying to break the cycle of crime, I thought it was an issue that was worth undertaking.
1: That's Governor Deal describing what his, was in his mind as he started working on these reforms in his first term, as you point out in his very first legislative session, Kerry. Right? Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way right now. And let's come back and let's talk about uh, the reforms that Governor Deal started putting in place quickly as he took the office. This is Political Rewind.
0: Welcome to GPB's Stealth Drive, an innovative way of fundraising on the air this spring. It's all about giving you more programming and less fundraising. Support GPB now at 800-222-4788 or gpb.org and choose from a variety of great thank you gifts, including tickets to see best-selling author and humorist David Sedaris before they go on sale to the public. David Sedaris will be at the Fox Theater in Atlanta on Wednesday, November 20th and the Classic Center in Athens on Wednesday, December 4th. For a limited time only, with your credit card contribution of $300, select a pair of tickets to An Evening with David Sedaris in either Atlanta or Athens as your thank you gift. You'll also join us for GPB's exclusive pre-show reception. Don't wait. Call 800-222-4788 now or give online at gpb.org. And thanks.
1: We are talking about criminal justice reform on the show today. Uh, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, is with us. Kerry Miller, who worked uh, for Governor Miller on the reforms that he put in place. Marissa Dodson, who is at the Southern Center for Human Rights. And our good friend, uh, Michael Owens, uh, who is the immediate past chair of the Cobb County Democratic Party. During the break, you all wanted to make sure that we pointed out, and you reminded me that I need to say, that we talked in that first segment largely about violent criminals. And um, while the reforms, Carrie, did have some impact on people who committed violent crimes, a good deal of what you did on the commission related to nonviolent offenders who were nevertheless clogging up the system, and, and I think it's really important and good that we point that out.
3: Yeah, that, that's correct, and and as uh, Marissa pointed out on the break, you know, there, there were, um, and there continued to be discussions surrounding some of the additional mandatory minimum uh, aspects that remain in our laws. Uh, we did kind of uh, uh, provide some safety valves as it relates to recidivist sentencing on drug offenses and drug trafficking offenses, which, again, Fits with the theme that you were describing of, of nonviolent offenders, and, and you know, as you pointed out, that um, you know Governor Deal recognized is diverting those nonviolent offenders uh, from uh, our harshest correctional option um, when it's not necessarily appropriate, because uh, once they pass through the gate, the recidivism rate of those individuals uh, significantly increases.
5: Um, you know, I, I wanted to, to back up just a little bit and set the stage about when Governor Deal took office and kind of where we were as a state because in that clip we listened to, I think he mentioned that we were number four in population of, of prison, um, prison population number four in the country. Um, but we were actually number one when it comes to people being uh, either incarcerated, locked up, or on probation. Actually, I think Georgia was the number one in the state at that time. And if, to put wow. it a context, one out of every 13 Georgians were either locked up on probation or on parole.
1: Marissa, you're nodding at that figure.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So, um, and that's kind of the conversation that we continue to have, is that Georgia leads the country and the world in terms of people under correctional control per capita. One in 16 Georgians is on probation. Um, I think it's one in 17 or 18 that's on uh, some form of correctional control. It. It is the new uh, evolution of reform, this concept of how much it costs to put people in, uh, in prison and in facilities. We know, for example, it costs upwards of $20,000 a year to house someone in a state facility. So when you think about how you might be able to save money by keeping people in their community, particularly when Governor Deal took office, um, I think it was the majority of people that were incarcerated, and Carrie, um, correct me if I'm wrong, were incarcerated for a nonviolent offense. And um, Governor Deal used the the phrase, we want to use our prison beds for people that we are uh, scared of and not mad at, and this concept Uh of— shifting around the way that we use our um, incarceration in that and,
2: way. And that's really where the meeting of the minds occurred. I mean, Carrie and Marissa, uh, uh, there was the liberal, somewhat democratic point of view that was more maybe focused on social justice and the realities of how this affected certain communities. And then there was the conservative Republican point of view that really came at it. This doesn't make financial sense, what we're doing. And and in a rare instance of hyper-partisanship finding common ground, right?
3: I I think that's right. And, you know, the the statistic that Michael pointed out and I, I, you know, the one in 13, uh, this is a political show. So I do want to take the opportunity to (laughs) point out, the, you know, the governor in the 2014 reelection campaign, I mean, he hammered home one in 13 individuals in this state is under some form of correctional supervision. I mean, on the stump, you know, in uh, GOP uh, meetings, uh, you know, throughout the state, and it was really a you know a banner thing for him to run on so you talk about you know coming from from somebody who just really had bold leadership to come in when, when folks were not thinking about it, to running for re-election on the issue. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: <laughs> when you talk about the politics of the situation, to think that it was a Democratic governor, and of course, you know, at, at least the stereotypical image we have of Democrats is that they tend to take the side of those who are struggling for equality, for social justice, and it's Republicans who are really tougher on crime It was the Democrat Zell Miller who established all these tougher statutes and the Republican Nathan Deal who comes along and says, we've got to be more smart. We've got to be smarter and more humane. In how we deal with uh, people, and, who...
2: and I want to go back to something Kerry said because, um, you know, we've written a lot about this, and so we know that. And I would like your insights about what it was like to talk to Governor Deal about this. And I've also heard his son talk about it, and they are both extremely passionate and genuinely emotional. About this idea of of reasonable reform, particularly for people with with drug problems and or emotional and other problems, right?
3: I, absolutely, and you know, I uh, the governor uh, said it uh, quite often um, in public and in private that if you want to see what the story of redemption looks like, attend a drug court graduation. Yeah. I, I mean, the and the fact that you know at this time judges like Judge Deal. Um, we're operating these drug courts on their own and their own, you know, a- additional time um, a- and on their own dime. I mean, d- just to to do it uh, because it was the right thing to do. Why
2: don't you pause for a moment to explain what a drug court. Well, wait, or, wait, we'll, before we go soon. to
1: that, okay,
2: <laughs> I, it, I, I,
1: I wa- you're right. We do right. need to do that. But before we do that, let's make sure that we explain so that our listeners uh, have a handle on this. Just the mo- the most sweeping aspects of what your are Team at the commission with Governor Deal's support did, and talk about that. Let, let me just use the language of Bill Rankin, your reporter over at the AJC, who has covered this stuff extensively. Here's what he said uh, in an article that he was writing as, as uh, Governor Deal was getting set to leave office. <coughs> Excuse me. The reforms have saved taxpayers a bundle in prison spending dropped prison admissions of African Americans to historic lows, overhauled the state's juvenile justice system, and greatly expanded court programs that treat nonviolent offenders who suffer suffer from substance abuse and mental illness. The overhaul will almost certainly be Deal's legacy. Now, one aspect of that is what you started to ask about, Kevin, and that's um, accountability courts, Mm -hmm. drug courts, uh and and, and uh, uh other courts that help address how do i put this uh people who have issues that might be remedied by some sort of program to address their their needs for alcoholism for sure. drug use, right? Isn't that what accountability courts are? And didn't, you expanded them with, with the governor from like just a handful to a hundred some in the state.
3: That, that's right. And uh, you know, now, and we're, we're quite proud of this. And we were talking before we went on air, um, you know, we, we have an accountability court in every single judicial circuit, all 49 judicial circuits of the state. Um, and, I, you know, it's over 150, I think, of different accountability courts that are operational throughout the state. Uh, but as you alluded to, the, the, the goal and the focus of an accountability court is that uh, those individuals who are, um, you know, for instance, I'll, I'll use drug court as an example because it's the most commonly thought of one. But those individuals who, who have a uh, demonstrated um, addiction issue um, to, to whatever, uh, you know, drug problem it may be, these are not individuals who have their first drug offense. Uh, these are, you know, repeat drug offenders who rather than uh, heading to the state's correctional facilities, uh, which they would be going otherwise.
2: I mean, but do you mean just for the drug offense or you mean offenses connected to the addiction do you, or, or both?
3: Uh, it can be both. But, okay. but the, uh, the underlying aspect is that there is a drug addiction there. Um, and and in the, in the instance of drug courts, most often it is uh, some sort of possession or sale or, or, or something, you know, possession of a much higher amount than a, than a misdemeanor uh, amount. Um, and the goal is to put them in, in an intensive uh, program, and they are quite intensive, uh, where the uh, court will meet uh, several times a week, uh, will uh, have random drug tests, will require employment of the individuals, uh, will, you know, have, have a lot of check-ins. Uh, they may be uh, required to attend, uh, you know, drug counseling classes. Um, also, uh, they may be required to attend some sort of vocational improvement, uh, you know, class too. Um, so the whole goal of this is diverting them from a prison bed um, and remedying them, you know, in the court and giving them an opportunity to move forward. and And Marissa and I were talking before we went on air, and I don't want to jump ahead to our, you know, r- what are the results. But we have just had some really encouraging results out of drug courts, um, you know, ever since, they, I guess it was 2015 when the Accountability Court Council was codified, which kind of gave some structure to the accountability courts, provided a supplement to the uh, folks who were running the courts. Uh, since that time, we've had the opportunity to do the recidivism study on that cohort, and the recidivism rate for a drug court graduate is 2%.
1: Marissa, you are tracking, I assume, you're watching this data carefully at the Southern Center. Uh, so when Kerry says that it's down to recidiv- – the recidivism rate is lowered, obviously, mm-hmm. in an aston- to an astonishing low – uh, these courts seem to be having real success.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that um, when you think, and there are several types of courts you have mental health courts, you have drug courts, you have veterans courts, mm-hmm. you have family courts, you have um, courts in the juvenile context as well. Um, and so, what we know is that when you uh, meet people where they are and meet their needs in the community with effective evidence based um, programming, that people will not be justice involved. And I would um, want to go even one step further to say that that um, while Governor Deal's efforts, um, the, you know, the last few years, we spent a lot of time thinking about people who were facing conviction, had been in the system, um, putting them on some type of um, kind of programming so that they can stay out of the system. We should be thinking or be more thoughtful about what folks have access to even before they get in the system. We all know that the criminal justice system is not the place for uh, mental health treatment or substance abuse treatment. And so I think that while a very, very critical first uh, step to think about how we could um, really stop the cycle of um, uh, criminal behavior in our community that we should think through um, effective community-based treatments that aren't justice involved.
1: Michael?
5: Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, pre-com diversions, um, accountability courts as a whole, I think it's been a really good thing. I think it's that balance between like, you know, Tough laws versus smart laws, right? Or tough laws versus the smart decisions that we make, and that's where you get in trouble with the mandatory minimums and sentencing. Is does not allow the courts or the the judge to use that situational uh, background or things that are specific. Myself, being a veteran, um, you know, had been a longtime advocate of veteran courts. I remember through Cobb County and and even in Douglas County. I think it was it was up two thousand sixteen. I think when when Douglas County got theirs. Uh, their veteran court established, and I helped kind of push for that, because you realize each one of these these issues, you know, whether you're talking about someone who is mentally ill or or a veteran, there's things that have shaped their life and and there's ways that at getting at them not only to to, you know do their time or or, or punishment for the crime they did, but understand them in a way that you can, that those punitive things can lead to lack of recidivism or, or truly re-engage in society to get them away from whatever initially caused that. Right. So um, I think accountability courts are great. And I, I love the way that they've kind of grown throughout the state. And I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, Governor Deal deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, but I think it's just kind of an evolution of of where we're going with understanding where people are and, and not just this thing of, you know, lock them up and throw away the key. Can
4: um, I say... Go ahead sorry I just I think that it is intuitive that if you treat people if you if someone says I have a mental health issue or you identify as somebody with a um substance abuse issue or something going on that if you treat them, give them the support of their family and community that the likelihood that they might you know return to the system I mean are we surprised that we have this result? I think that we should do more, but I definitely think that um focusing on what causes people to get in the system in the first place. Is the better answer for criminal justice? So right
1: you you talk about things like accountability courts that were put in place much more broadly uh, under the reforms, Kerry. Uh, what about juvenile justice? Oh, the,
3: you know the juvenile justice reforms are, are really and truly one of the one of the shining stars of the um, uh, criminal justice reforms that were put in place. And uh, you know I would point to uh, first of all. In the second year of reform um, the, the governor the council proposed the governor uh, pushed through the uh, legislature with the general assembly's um, overwhelming uh, i think unanimous support um, an entire rewrite of uh, the juvenile code and again, all of this was focused at um, what is the same problem that you're talking about with accountability courts but uh, perhaps more serious when it in terms of juveniles where if if you have a juvenile that has uh, been adjudicated delinquent, is facing an out-of-home placement, possibly in a secure facility. Uh, The recidivism rate, once they move into that out-of-home placement or secure facility against similarly situated individuals who don't enter into those programs, is significantly higher. Um, And so one big focus was what's called the Juvenile Justice Incentive Grant Program, which targeted um, high risk, uh, according to a predisposition risk assessment, um, juveniles and saw tremendous success. Uh, this funded in-home placement uh, therapy programs that were available to 98 percent of the uh, juvenile population in the state. Um, and really, uh, you're talking about a high risk, you know, what is scored as a high risk juvenile. And the success rate for those juveniles was around 70 percent coming out of the program uh, with success. I mean, that 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 is a, a I mean, really and truly a remarkable you know, number to get to. Um, so there's no doubt that, uh, you know, between the accountability courts, uh, the juvenile uh, programs, and then also, you know, what, what kicked it all off was uh, adjusting the uh, sentencing, uh, weight-based sentencing for drug offenses, uh, changing the misdemeanor felony threshold in 1176. You, by
1: that, you mean that certain crimes that had once been categorized as felonies were reclassified as misdemeanors, therefore changing the outcome, the sentencing outcome.
3: That, that's right. And we, we had, uh, so if you, this was uh, House Bill 1176. This was in the, uh, I guess it would be the 2012 session, um, which focused on adjusting these thresholds that all of a sudden trigger a felony offense. They had not been adjusted in many years before. I, I couldn't tell you the exact timeline, but, but it had not been reevaluated as to what constitutes the jump from a misdemeanor to a felony. Yeah. So so that was one of the first steps with the help of uh, you know, Pew Charitable Trust and their technical assistance was was adjusting weight-based sentencing for drug offenses and then uh, the felony threshold for, for shoplifting and theft offenses.
1: Um, Kevin, we got to get to a break, but you, you sort of hit on something I think really important here, which is this was a convergence of what was pr- pragmatically necessary in terms of cost and facilities, availability, and another word that we don't think of very often in our politics today, compassion. Right. That's yeah. a word, that word is so lacking in the political discourse of today. And yet the more you talk about the reforms, the more you recognize there was a genuinely compassionate impulse at work here.
2: I really, uh, if you watch, if you tracked Governor Deal, not so much as an insider the way that I think Gary <laughs> and Marissa did, but instead, you know, as we covered him, he sort of lured. Republicans into it with the money savings and the pragmatism. And if there's a word to describe Nathan Deal, it's pragmatist, yeah. I think. <laughs> and then he displayed remarkable compassion and emotion around the idea. And I think he won over a lot of people that may may be from the side of the fence. Well, you see the issue, yeah, right, For Marissa? For
1: a guy who started off by saying uh, Republicans don't see criminal justice reform as their issue, Two of the votes that they got on these measures, Michael, were unanimous votes. All, you know, all Republicans, all Democrats in the chamber. Because
5: it makes sense across the board. I mean, we go back and talk about accountability courts. You know, accountability courts still, it, it works on both sides, right? Number one. I think the study showed that it costs a little over four thousand dollars a year to have someone in accountability courts, whereas going back to the earlier statement was around It's
4: about fifteen thousand. It's four thousand less than it's so it's 4, less than
5: twenty thousand dollars, right? But then also um if you're able to, you know, keep someone at home, even though it's intense type um rehabilitation, if you're able to keep them at home instead of in one of those prison beds, and you're not talking about building another prison and spending that that twenty thousand dollars. So you're able to keep someone at home, keep someone with their family, um, and and help help
3: work with
1: them in in the community. So
3: I, I, I got to get too.
1: you break. You want to get a last word in?
3: Yeah, I, I just from a policy perspective, relatedly, you know, one of the reasons these things went through so well is that uh, our job as the council was to vet them and have various stakeholders. You know, folks like Marissa, prosecutors, judges, sheriffs, all to the table. We're, we're not putting up half-baked ideas with this thing
1: yeah yeah all right let's do this let's get to a break and when we come back all right we've done a i think we've done as well as we're going to uh, in terms of the time that we have available to talk about the reforms what nathan deal put in place let's talk kevin riley about what next what needs to be done that has not yet been accomplished and we'll do that after the break
4: During GPB's fund drives, listeners sometimes tell us they'd appreciate it if we'd spend less time fundraising on the air. So this spring, we're trying something entirely new. Cover the costs of the programs that matter to you and hopefully eliminate the spring fund drive. We're calling this less disruptive style of fundraising GPB's Stealth Drive. No pitch breaks, just short reminders like this one. But it will only work when we hear from you. Do your part at gpb.org or 800-222-4788.
2: On the next Fresh Air, fear and hope about climate change. Bill McKibben, who first warned of climate change 30 years ago, says its effects are now upon us, with heat waves, fires, flooding, drought, and soon millions of climate refugees.
3: He also warns of the dangers of human genetic engineering and artificial intelligence. McKibben's new book is called Falter. Join us.
2: Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. A couple of quick notes before we continue our conversation. First of all, if you're watching on Facebook Live and it looks different, if you haven't been watching us recently, we are in our temporary studio. We'll be moving to a brand-new talk studio uh, fairly soon. And second of all, I don't want this show to run out without uh, thanking Bailey Walker. Our University of Georgia intern who took this subject, she said, I want to do something on criminal justice reform (laughs) and put the entire show together for us. Thank you, Bailey. You've done a great job. This is really a good panel. Nice work. work. Great work. (laughs) Go dogs, by the way. Go (laughs) dogs. Kevin, you know, okay, so we've accomplished a lot. And Marissa, you said something really important, that among other things, you said this during the break, among the reforms themselves, uh, a- a- aside from that, if it, to some extent it's deracialized our thinking about criminal justice in this state.
4: Mm-hmm. I, the state. You know, we have uh, recently we are seeing more um, white communities impacted by drugs and that, you know, those conversations around opioid heroin and this kind of, you know, those kinds of public health conversations weren't happening 20 years ago they weren't happening 25 30 years ago and that's because right that it is easier to keep people and put you know throw people away and lock away lock them up and throw away the key when it's not your community yeah. and i think that what we have seen is that when it impacts more communities in georgia more communities um get behind criminal justice all right. reform
1: thank you for that uh all right kevin so it's no longer the nathan deal uh uh era it's now the Brian Kemp era. Uh, Governor Kemp made a reference to continuing criminal justice reforms. He 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 made note in his inaugural speech of how much Governor Deal had accomplished and said we'll continue those reforms. We really haven't seen any. What we're seeing right now from Governor Kemp is a new focus on uh, the the wars he wants to do uh, against. Uh, 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 criminal organizations that may really need to be uh fought uh he he's looking at the gang problem there are people who don't quite agree with the statistics and how many people are in gangs out there human trafficking uh, uh chris carr his attorney general was able to put through pass legislation in this session establishing a human trafficking uh unit so so far they seem to be more engaged in enforcement than in continuing the reforms we'll see
2: Right I think it I think it's an interesting question going forward and I'm really <laughs> curious to see what Marissa and Carrie have to say about this. And I'll give you this example. We've heard the governor talk about the gang stuff and and some of the other things. I mean, no one's for gangs. No one's for human trafficking. I mean, I think there's a lot to learn about what's effective. And then we have this local thing here in Fulton County with these repeat offenders and the overcrowded Fulton County Jail and the fights between the police, the community. Well, it's happening judges. primarily
1: in Buckhead where they're right. com-
2: the community is complaining that people are
1: being arrested for car theft, going into court, being released immediately, and stealing their next
2: car. I mean, that kind of stuff, um, I mean, my question is, does it put this sort of thinking that we've been, we've been you know, sort of espousing on the show at risk, and, and what would, you know, two people who are intimately familiar with how the system works, what really works, what's really going on, what would you say, I mean, what would your message be to the listeners about this?
3: you know i I'll, uh, I'll i'll have been first cuz i you know marissa and i may disagree on certain uh points <laughs> here but you know i look i i think there's uh a distinction to be drawn between what the governor did with uh criminal justice reform particularly with bill reform in the last year and uh what the uh city of Atlanta chose to move forward with um in terms of uh you know wholesale repeal of uh the bond schedules you know i, I Look, like I I think what we did in terms of the state requiring judges to consider the ability ability to pay determination, uh, you know, having these uh, factors pay for in, bail, pay for bail, yeah, having these factors in there is 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 appropriate. Um, and I would also say to the to the point about the uh, you know Governor Kemp's focus on uh, you know serious violent crime and you know the the gang aspect and things like that, you know, there can really not be much denial in terms of the. A recent spike in violent crime rate. I I mean, you know, in terms of where we are overall, we're still decreased from the level that we were at, you know, close to 10 years ago. But, um, you know, it's a legitimate concern for sure. And I don't think it's inconsistent uh, with what the governor was proposing in terms of. Marissa, respond to that.
1: I'm interested in your.
4: Um, oh, there's so much there. Uh, <laughs> uh, so let me first clarify something, because I think that, you know, these conversations around bail reform and what the city of Atlanta did and the impact it's having on Buckhead and the um, you know, criminal activity in Fulton is just completely misplaced. First and foremost, Atlanta's city of Atlanta's bail reform ordinance or the um, bail, the new bail ordinance says that for people that were not charged with certain offenses, and they're talking about nonviolent offenses, that they can't be uh, given cash bail. And the, the reason why, and I know we don't have a lot of time, but the issue with cash bail is that it only hurts the poor. It does is not about public safety yeah. because if it was about public safety, then two people that were similarly charged would not it would not turn on whether or not someone had money. So when we start started talking about reforms around looking at how wealth-based detention was impacting people charged with very very small uh, minor offenses, that's what we went to Atlanta for. So what Atlanta's ordinance does is say that for everybody who was not charged with a violent offense, you cannot get cash bail. Everybody else who's been charged with a, with a um, a violent offense must go to, before a judge. A judge must make an individualized determination. So conflating this concept of people just coming out and, you know, returning back to their community and that cash bail was really going to keep us safe, I would just posture that. Very rarely do people go to prison for life for stealing or, a car. So I, this I, concept, people were coming back to their community anyway, I, is...
1: I sense another show on just this subject. <laughs> yeah, no, <I'm> seriously, <laughs> I do. I, we are, I mean, we're literally down to the last couple minutes. Yep. If you had, Marissa, and then I want to ask you the same thing, Michael, if you had to pick one reform that you believe is something that the Kemp can uh, Kemp can uh, governor's office ought to look at next. Can you say what it would be?
4: Well, I actually think that we're already there. Um, so this past session, look, um, House Bill 514 creates a Behavioral Health Commission. This is a, a look at mental health treatment and access and quality of it across the state. And so this concept of people being in our justice system because they need mental health treatment as a public safety consideration, there is an opportunity to think about what we doing. So we're do heading in the right commission.
1: direction. So it it would be wrong of me to say that the governor, our new governor, is not continuing looking at reforms. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Michael?
5: You know, one thing, I think I read an article a couple of weeks ago, um, and it had to do with wrongful death convictions and the overturning of those. And I think that going back all the way to my to my original comment about the war on, on drugs, um, we're, we're four decades into this. So any turnaround that we've had or any reduction in... Uh, you know African American uh, Conviction, rates convictions so, yeah. as at an all-time low but but again, you're talking about forty years I think of of laws and practices that is that has made that. Uh, crippling throughout throughout their entire society so a part of it would be going back and taking a look at the wrongful convictions and right. ensuring that we're still not jailing people that should not be.
1: You have 20 seconds Gary, <laughs> to come up with one idea. Yeah, 20
3: yeah. seconds for a, a, a list of ideas. <laughs> no. I, uh, I, I echo Marissa's sentiment and I think uh, particularly with respect to our local jails and the strain it puts on our local jails you know we talked earlier about about where they fit into this grand scheme of things but I do just want to say you know the governor in his budget committed a significant amount of money yeah. to accountability courts and others. Thank so. you.
1: I appreciate that. Carrie Miller, Marissa Dodson, uh, uh, Michael Owens, uh, Kevin Riley, we are completely out of time. This is another one of those days when I wish you could go beg Terry Gross to let me have her fresh air hour and keep this discussion going, but I can't do that. Uh, we're out of here uh, tomorrow. Dr. Andra Gillespie, one of our favorite panelists, is going to be here to talk about her new book on Barack Obama and what impact he had on the status of African-Americans and how African-Americans ended up viewing him. Really interesting show that I hope you'll be with us for. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow at 2.